Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. This is the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice. This week we have a special episode. We have stories of people making some of the hardest decisions of their lives, stories of migrants. You'll hear people in Tijuana trying to get into the United States and people the United States has deported to Honduras. And those in Honduras right now deciding if it's time to go. They are grappling with the same simple question. Do they have more to gain or more to lose by leaving? Voice of San Diego's reporter, Mayashri Krishnan, has the story. I'm Maya Krishnan. I write about the U.S.-Mexico border and immigration for Voice of San Diego. I recently took a trip to San Pedro Sula in Honduras to try and better understand why so many people are leaving the country to come to the United States. Bueno, pues, en mi caso... I had never thought about leaving my country. I always liked to work. I always liked having my own business, not depending on an employer. But when I left here, it was because they killed my father-in-law. My husband was fearful since they had already killed my father-in-law. And my mother-in-law decided to get out of here. She told us, let's go. I said, I don't have money. I can't leave. But she said, Let's go. We'll help you. We found out he had been killed that night, and then the morning we got ready and left. I said, well, this must be what God wants. I did not carry even one Lempira in my bag. That's Leslie, describing to me what made her and her family attempt the journey to the U.S. Leslie is one of the many returned migrants I met in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, in June. Leslie was detained and deported shortly after crossing the Rio Grande. In November 2018, the largest caravan of migrants in history made its way to the U.S.-Mexico border, to Tijuana. Most of the 5,000 people who arrived at our border were from Honduras. We suffered a lot along the way. Sun, rain, cold, water. We went from town to town. People helped us. Sometimes we would walk for 15, 12 hours. Once we walked for 20 hours. That's Danielson. He was deported to San Pedro Sula. He traveled with the caravan that arrived in Tijuana in November 2018. We first met in Tijuana. After spending months in immigration detention, he was deported back to San Pedro Sula just a day before I arrived there. Honduras. 
Hondurans also made up the majority of the 1,500-person caravan that had arrived in Tijuana earlier that year, in April 2018. Now a new migrant caravan is on the move from Central America. By train, the caravan has arrived. As what Once calls a caravan of migrants, people from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, many... The caravan of buses arrived in Tijuana with Central American migrants, weary after a month of travel. Maria Martinez... That was 14-year-old Kevin, who we met when he arrived with April's caravan in Tijuana to seek asylum in the U.S. and join his father, who is living in Los Angeles. After a crackdown at the border in response to their arrival, we're not seeing quite as many Hondurans coming to the Tijuana-San Diego region. But since 2018, they continue to migrate in the highest rates of any nationality coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. That means the most people migrating from the country when you compare it to its population. In May, one in every 224 Hondurans was apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border in a single month. That's an exodus. I wanted to see why so many Hondurans were fleeing from their country. Here in San Diego, a coalition of nonprofit service providers, along with the county and other local governments, have had to step in to help Hondurans and other asylum seekers who are arriving at the border. Asylum seekers are spending weeks and months desperately waiting for their turn to request asylum in Tijuana as the U.S. government began taking only a limited number of asylum seekers at the port of entry since the caravan arrived. A policy began at our border in January that then began sending some who requested asylum back to Mexico to await their asylum proceedings. These policies have created a bottleneck at our border, straining resources of local migrant shelters and others who are trying to help. A new policy will now require asylum seekers who pass through another country to reach the U.S. to request asylum in that country first, instead of just traveling through and requesting asylum in the U.S. That policy has already been challenged in court, and we're still waiting to see how it plays out. The San Diego-Tijuana region has been thrust into the center of it all, especially as we became the destination of these high-profile caravans of migrants from Central America. As asylum seekers have to spend more and more time at the border, I wanted to help people here understand the situation on the ground in Honduras, one of the countries from where we're seeing such a large number of asylum seekers. I spent a week in and around San Pedro Sula, the second largest city in Honduras and the place from where the caravans left. I tried to speak with as many people as I could, from deportees and people planning on migrating, to local politicians and economists, to union leaders and advocates of victims of violence. For most people, it all boiled down to one thing, a loss of hope in the country. I had faith that we could get ahead in this country, but in a country as unstable as Honduras, it's hard. Life hangs by a thread here. As safe as you want to feel, you can't. There is a lot of insecurity. That's N. He was deported from the U.S. to Honduras years ago and has been trying to make things work. He started a business. He has a family. But then in May, he witnessed his sister's murder in her beauty salon. 
Now he's worried that the same people who killed his sister will come for him because he's been cooperating with authorities and trying to arrest the man who murdered his sister. I'm not even using N's first name for his safety, since he was a witness to a crime. His fear has left him considering to leave the country, too. I am afraid because we are cooperating with the authorities, and there have been many cases of protected witnesses that have been killed. There's so much corruption that you don't know who you can give information to about what. You just can't trust anyone. Life here, there are no resources to prosper. There's no work. Gangs, maras, what can a person do? I want to look for a new place to be able to prosper and work. That's Josue. He's 17 and lives in Cofradia, a semi-rural town outside of San Pedro Sula. Many people in Cofradia depend on the maquilas, or foreign factories, for work. Old U.S. school buses run by the maquilas do rounds around Cofradia and the surrounding areas to bring people to and from work at the factories. Josue tried to make it to the U.S. for the first time in the spring. I met him maybe a month after he had been deported. Josue's mom told me that when he called to tell her he had been detained by Mexican authorities, he was crying, like he had let her and their family down by not making it to the U.S., where he could help them more financially. Josue plans to try making it to the United States again someday. He's currently working on a bus, collecting fares, but because of protests that were happening in June, his mom wasn't letting him go to work. There had been instances of protesters hurling rocks at buses, and she was worried about his safety. The protests were in response to government proposals to privatize healthcare and education. Education and healthcare have long suffered in Honduras. They've been plagued by severe budget cuts and multiple corruption scandals under the National Party, which has ruled Honduras since a military back coup in 2009. The protests were further fueled by news that emerged in May when the U.S. released court documents in a drug trafficking case against Tony Hernandez, the brother of the president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez. The document showed that the DEA had also been investigating the president. Fatima Mena, a city councilwoman in San Pedro Sula and member of the anti-corruption political party, was one of many who told me that the National Party's rule over the country since the 2009 coup has caused people to leave the country. She specifically points to the re-election of Hernandez at the end of 2017, which faced widespread allegations of fraud. In anti-government protests over the election outcomes, more than 30 people were killed. It was only a couple months after this that a 1,500-person caravan arrived in Tijuana in April 2018, primarily made up of Hondurans. Migration is a symptom, a response to the deep corruption that exists in the country. People lost hope over the re-election of Juan Orlando Hernandez. That illegal re-election began to increase the amount of people who leave. We had not seen such caravans until the country lost hope. 
The Honduran quote-unquote democratic system has betrayed my trust. I really believed that my vote would be respected and that we would be able to have a government that really represents us. But the one that currently stands is a government that lacks legitimacy and that's why people lose hope. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, how life has changed for women in Honduras since a coup 10 years ago. We'll be right back. Hey, just a quick message on behalf of the team at Voice. PolitiFest is back this year. This time, our entire event will be focused on housing and transportation. It's an all-day event featuring guest speakers, live podcasts, panels, community conversations, and more. We promise it'll be a great time. We always have a great turnout for PolitiFest, so you can get your tickets now. You can get them at politifest.org and find out more about the summit. Things have gotten especially bad since the 2009 coup for certain groups in Honduras, like women. In 2017, there were more than 32 women killed on average each month in the country, according to the Violence Observatory of the National Autonomous University of Honduras. Violence against women has intensified here in Honduras as a result of the coup. It's because since 2009, we started experiencing more violence against women. But the persecution and human rights violations have intensified here in Honduras since then. The rights given to us by law have been diminished because sometimes, even without realizing it, there have been laws that have been repealed and amended to take away women's rights. Dadzi. She works with women facing violence in Choloma, a city near San Pedro Sula. I'm not using her real name because she's faced violence for her human rights work in the community. There's high impunity for perpetrators of violence against women. In 2016, of about 400 femicides, only 15 were investigated, and of that, only two resulted in convictions. Honduras is the only nation in Latin America that outright bans emergency contraception, including for rape victims. Abortion is also outlawed, with no exceptions for rape, incest, severe fetal abnormalities, or the life of the pregnant woman. Since the coup, legal protections for women who are victims of domestic violence have been rolled back, Z told me, while penalties for rapists have lessened. Z said it's the absence of any protection of human rights that led people to travel in the caravan in November. Thousands crossing the Suchiate River at the Guatemala-Mexico border to then make their way through Mexico to the United States. Ever since I can remember, there have been people who go to the United States to improve their lives. But never have I seen them leave and cross the border between Guatemala and Chiapas like this. 7,000 people at once crossing the Suquiat River. That tells you there is something more, that people are fleeing from the danger of violence, from the lack of protection, from the human rights violations. People are fleeing to save their lives. 
Young people see the problems in their schools, the violence in their neighborhoods, and they know the problems stem from the highest levels of government in the country. That's what Rafael Delgado says, who's an economist in San Pedro Sula. He says, they feel like they'll have more to lose by staying than by going. Me, if I'm an 18-year-old, or even if I'm younger, 15 years old, and I go to a public school, first I realize that I'm getting terrible services, that in my school, the roof is rotting and there are water leaks, that we don't have desks, we don't have teaching materials, the conditions in the school are the worst. There's no sanitation services. I don't see potable water. Then, on top of that, I leave my house, I leave school, and gang members harass me. Then, on top of this, I get home and my parents don't have jobs. And I hear on the radio that the government is investing thousands, millions of dollars in combating crime. That they're raising taxes to contract more police, to buy more patrol cars and better technology. But in my neighborhood, I don't see change. So there is this disconnect for people. A young person who doesn't know anything about politics realizes that in their neighborhood, there's not only no jobs, but there's no safety. And they realize that these problems come from the top, that the people in charge of solving problems aren't doing anything. They're wasting money, and this causes discontent. It discourages people. Putting it in practical terms, it depresses people. So then comes along my friend Leo, and he says, Rafael, in a day, in a week, we're going to meet at the bus station in San Pedro Sula at midnight. There, I have everything organized to leave. The situation is so hopeless from every way you look at it, and I have nothing more to lose, or I have more to lose staying than leaving. That's the thing in Honduras. At this point, it's not just the poverty and violence driving people out of the country. It's that on top of having to live that daily reality filled with fear and the struggle to make ends meet, there's no hope for a solution from within the country. There's no trust in anyone, in any system. And when there is nowhere to turn in your own country, you go somewhere else, to a different country. Okay, before you go, we have some news for the week. Right now, if you are building homes in San Diego, if you're a developer, you must include low-income housing in your projects or you have to pay a fee. And there's a proposal, a big proposal, going to a vote next week at the San Diego City Council that would increase that fee and lower the requirements of income for the units that you might build instead of paying the fee in, the, in your project. And so that's going to be a big decision. The builders are literally panicking about this. They say it'll halt development, uh, that it'll exacerbate the housing affordability crisis. But Georgette Gomez told our reporter, Andrew Keats, that no, uh, she's not changing. So it's going to be a really interesting showdown Tuesday at the San Diego City Council. There's new data about who gets to go to college and who the public school system is failing to serve. The data shows that San Diego Unified School District performs well as a whole in terms of sending students to college, but not all students are faring equally. 
Latino students represent roughly 57% of San Diego Unified's population, but the district is failing to help them get in the same graduation rates as their peers. And finally, this week, the San Diego Association of Governments fired three senior staffers. Another leadership shakeup for an agency that has been changing direction since late last year. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. I'm Scott Lewis, Editor-in-Chief at Voice. Our immigration and border reporter is Maya Krishnan, and she has a newsletter you can follow. It's called The Border Report. Get it at voiceofsandiego.org slash border. This episode was produced by Maya Krishnan and Nate John, and we will talk to you next week.